Welcome to the Jean Hales Podcast Women's Health Week series, where we talk about all the things you want to hear but can never ask. Here's your host, Janet Mishelmore. Today we're talking about sex, and to be honest with you, this is not a subject I find easy to talk about, but I do suspect I'm not alone. I'm joined by one of Australia's leading sexuality educators, Vanessa Hamilton, who is changing the way we teach adults and children about sex and consent. It's an amazing and necessary conversation that we all need to have. So let's get started with my interview with Vanessa Hamilton. Vanessa, you're a sexuality educator, but I've often heard you say that the term sex should be scrapped from sex education, which I think would actually surprise most people. Can you explain to us why you say that? So interestingly, as you'll see, my old logo says sex and health education. I had to call it sex and health education when I started the business so people understood what I do. But essentially, I think sex is an unhelpful word. I think it means lots of different things to different people. And when I go to adult sessions and parents and teachers and I say, give me a definition of what is sex and what is sexuality, they always come up with the same thing. Sex is being male or female and it's the deed, the act of penis, vagina, heterosexual intercourse. So sexuality is much broader and more reflective of what we know about human sexuality. So I'm a sexuality educator and that's about educating people, children to adults, about human sexuality. And mainly my focus is on how to have conversations about that. Fantastic. So I'm here to learn. What are the most difficult things people find about talking about sex or sexuality? Why do they find it difficult? Well, they don't everywhere, but in Australia currently, I'll talk about the local experience we do. Oh, there's lots of reasons. A lot of it has to do with a lack of sexuality education and conversation in the past for the adults, for example. I teach children a lot. Sometimes I do parent sessions and the parents come away and say, that's the first sexuality education I've ever had. You know, I'm hoping I'm going to get one right now. Yeah, I hope I can give it to you because you can't stop me talking about it because I know how much impact just a small amount of information can have on people and really in a positive way. So the lack of conversation leads way to taboo and shame and all sort of euphemisms and inaccuracies. And when we have very loud messages from social media, popular culture, pornography, filling the vacuum that we should be filling with accurate human sexuality information, then we end up with the problems that we're in at the moment. First of all, can you talk to me about what you talk about in adult sexuality classes? Well, let's focus on the parent sessions, for example, that I do. Fabulous. Primary and secondary school. My main message to them, my take home, if they take nothing away from the session, it is this question to them. Who do you want to be to be the main person who teaches your child about the topic of sex and sexuality? Who do you want to be the person who fills that vacuum in their mind that needs to be filled? Now, they always say they want it to be them, but they always acknowledge it isn't them. And I say to them that children are getting a sexuality education every day, whether we like it or not. And that's from, like I said, that bubble of popular culture, pornography, media, social media, friends, peers, etc. And it really should be from the bubble of the school classroom and the adults at home that complements each other. And one of the other main things is that we need to swap out this fear and danger approach to human sexuality to one of positivity and joy. And that everyone has the right to write their own script for their sexual journey through life. And unfortunately, our kids at the moment are having that script written by things like pornography or pornified culture. 
and we should be the main educators and we can do it and it's easier than they think. Vanessa, you mentioned problems that happen when kids get their sexuality education from sources other than their parents or the classroom. What kind of problems are you talking about there? We have very high rates of sexual assault and sexual abuse and a lot of that is to do with lack of information and knowledge. Research clearly tells us when we provide adequate age-appropriate comprehensive sexuality education and information to young people and children from a young age throughout their schooling, they have much better outcomes later on in life, such as less unintended pregnancies, less sexually transmitted infections, more pleasurable experiences, less sexual assault. It's crystal clear in the research. And all we need to do is have open conversations about it that are positive and joyful and respectful and not the shame, fear and danger approach. When I speak to university first year students, I say to them, you know, raise the bar of your expectations of every intimate encounter that you have because it should be at least fun and pleasurable. It might be a bit weird and awkward and all those sorts of things, but it shouldn't be regretful or harmful. Like the dialogue that you've been fed, the message that it's okay that it's that way, it should never be that way. I think one of the reasons that parents feel so awkward is that they don't even know where to start. Correct. You're absolutely right. When I ask them what stops us from having these conversations with kids, I get the same answers all the time. What if I say the wrong thing? I don't have the language. What if I sexualize them? What if I give them ideas and they'll go out and do it? You know, all the same things. And I say to them, you can't get it wrong. You've just got to start. And it's lots and lots of small, teachable little moments. And you just have to be the main person who gives them that bit of information. As a parent who's now got adult children, I wish you'd been around when I was starting these. No, I'm serious when I was starting these conversations. Can you give people, I'm sure they're dying to hear, a couple of lines that are good openers with younger children. Let's pretend you get a question that stumps you. And, you know, I've had parents say to me, my seven-year-old daughter asked me what a tampon was and I just didn't even know where to go or say anything, you know. So the first thing you say is you keep your positive face on (laughs) and you take a deep (laughs) breath, even though you might be panicking inside, buy yourself some time and say, oh, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked me. What do you already know about that? Or where did you hear that? Or what made you think of that? Because you're just thinking, where are they going to go with it? What, what are they actually asking? When parents need to say something to their children, the first thing I say to them is to adults have layer upon layer upon layer of stuff in our heads about sex and sexuality. And we need to strip back, excuse the pun, those layers to address a simple question or situation in front of us. It's not relevant to the kids' questions. They're just asking simple questions. And our stuff gets in the way. I think adults should do a bit of soul searching and a bit of research to find out those first things to say, but just say, great question. People are so scared about talking about the amazing story of human reproduction because they have to talk about sexual intercourse. And it's actually quite simple. I can give you the example I use if you like. I'd love it. Would you? Yes. (laughs) So variations of this. And of course, there's other ways for babies to be created, but I'll give the example of sexual intercourse for creating a baby. You know, uh, a physical male and a physical female will talk about it, they'll plan it, they'll spend a lot of time thinking about it, they'll make a decision and when they're ready, they'll choose a private place and time, they'll be enjoying each other's bodies, usually with no clothes on, and when they're ready, the vagina will accept the penis, the penis will deliver the sperm and the sperm will travel up to meet the egg or the ovum. That is. Do you see how simple it can be? Yes, I'm marvelling at the simplicity. I'm marvelling at the ease with which you say it. We need to add in pleasure. You know, don't be scared of pleasure. So when they're a bit older, you can say the vagina becomes lubricated, 
the penis sticks up from the body and the vagina accepts the penis. Now, what we see written in dialogue everywhere is the penis is inserted, the man puts it there, the man pushes it there. Just changing that small dialogue to the vagina accepts the penis gives us the indication that there's two active participants and consent is included in just that simple dialogue. It seems like pleasure has gone from the dialogue. We don't talk about it. How can we get it back? Mm, it's a word that we're very scared of. Very, you know, when we talk about pleasure, pleasure is just pleasure. It doesn't mean sexual pleasure. When you teach pleasure to kids, you teach that holding hands or watching a movie together is pleasurable and you both enjoy it because you've both mutually negotiated it and it's something that you both want to do. Now, that sets decision-making and foundations for their intimate encounters later on, that every encounter they have with another person should feel good. It's not bad to feel good. So, for example, let's talk about sex in inverted commas, this idea of penis-vagina sex, for example. You know, the majority of people with a penis will have orgasm response from insertive penis-vagina intercourse. The majority of vagina owners won't. Yet it's the focus of what sex is, in inverted commas. Pornography will tell us penetration of an orifice is what sex is, yet brain and skin are the most important part of human sexual function, and we don't talk about that. And I love the term outer course, uh, as used by many sexual health professionals. Outer course, everything that's not insertive intercourse. Yes, insertive intercourse is important, but when we use our brain and skin involved in an intimate, sexual, pleasurable encounter, humans have the best response. So there's been a lot in the media about lack of consent amongst teenagers. How do we reverse that trend? How do we educate consent amongst teenagers so these horrible, horrible stories don't happen? Well, I feel for our teens. If you think about it, if the brain and skin is the most important part of an encounter that's going to be enjoyable and pleasurable, Think about a teenager, their brain's the most important sexual organ and that brain is affected by alcohol or drugs or fear or coercion or fear of creating a pregnancy or fear of sexually transmitted infections or fear of getting caught because they don't have an adequate place to participate in those exploratory experiences. They're not going to have a great time. (laughs) So for teenagers, it's about saying it should be enjoyable. Take your time. It's about all the other things that you do with each other. It's about the things you say to each other. And that idea of consent and mutual negotiation of something enjoyable is just standard. And that decision-making actually needs to start as children. And I give great examples of tying shoelaces and Lego as consent when I teach consent because I don't teach sexual consent in prep. I teach consent. So when they're a teenager, that innate decision-making is there for their intimate encounters in regard to consent. Hold on. How do you teach consent using Lego? I say you invite someone over to your house because you've found the Death Star, a ship, Lego, at the op shop, and it's got every piece. As I explain this story to you, as adults, think about the analogies to sexual encounters. But, of course, I don't talk about sex. I talk about Lego. And you're so excited, and so are they, and we're going to put it together. And you're just about to finish it. You've been working on it for three hours, just about to finish it. And the other person changes their mind and says, I don't want to do it anymore. What do you do in that situation? Now, the peer conversation is gold because you say that to kids and some kids will say, well, I'd punch them. Well, that's me. <laughs> well, they have to do it. Well, they said they would. Well, I'd make them do it. This is fascinating. Others will say, of course they can change their mind if they want to. They would do that. And then we go on to say, what can you do in that situation? And the kids will say, well, we can both stop and go and play something else that we both want to do. Yep. 
or think of this from the sexual analogy, I can leave them there and they can finish it and I'll go and do something else. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, sorry, I can't stop thinking of what a teacher said the other day in the session when I was explaining this and the teacher said, I could just call another friend to come over and help me finish it. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I'm sure there's an app for that. You know, so here we are laughing because those adult analogies, this is decision-making I want these kids to have. They don't realise it's got anything to do with sex, but it's there for when they happen into those encounters and part of the lesson goes on for me explaining that how good it was that you provided a safe environment for them to be able to speak up and say I really don't want to continue doing this I don't feel comfortable or on board with it you should be proud of yourself even though you're disappointed that you provided the situation that they feel safe to say that and how are you going to manage your disappointment that's such a great way to talk to younger kids about consent I absolutely love it But what I want to ask you is how do you reframe that same discussion about consent when you're talking to teenagers and then it's no longer about Lego? One of the things is going back to pleasure. We do not teach them enough that every intimate encounter can feel amazing and awesome. Almost to the point, this is going to sound pretty crude, but getting to the point of saying, why would you want to shove your penis in someone's mouth when they don't want you to do that? Of what benefit do you get out of that? but it's so complex. There's so many layers to it. And that's why we have to start early and layer upon layer those decision-making skills about empathy and respect and enjoying each other's connectedness because that is not what is showing in pornography. Their most important sexual organ has these images that people just like whatever's being done to them. There's no mutual negotiation. Everything's not realistic, such as bodies and the length of time of encounters. And it's not very often that a person in, uh, who's having something done to them will say, actually, I don't really like that. Can we change position? Or would it be all right if we've stopped now and we'll do it again tomorrow? You know, none of that happens, none of that dialogue. And there's certainly not a lot of loving, hugging, kissing. How would you like me to do this? Would you like me to do that a bit slower, a bit faster? Tell me what feels good. Can I grab your hand and you show me where you want me to touch you? We actually need to give them that. We don't even call one of the most pleasurable parts of a person's body the right thing. So, for example, people who have vulvas, we call it a vagina and it's not. It's a vulva and what sits behind it is a clitoris, which has 8,000 nerve endings that becomes erect like a penis and we don't even teach that. History has shown us, I've written a blog on it, about why uh, the clitoris has been misrepresented in medical textbooks as this tiny little knob at the top of the vulva when it's in fact you know, eight to nine centimetres of human tissue comparable to a penis. So saying that to teenagers, their eyes just pop out of their heads. When you actually show them the images and show them a clitoris and show the vulva puppet to the older ones, they're just fascinated because no one's ever told them. Vanessa, I just need to get you to explain what a vulval puppet is. <laughs> so I uh, wish I could show it to you. but oh, I do too. The vulva puppet that I have is a handmade, a bit like a cushion. It's about 20 centimetres and it has beautiful silk fabric and it has a detachable clitoris at the back of it <laughs> that sits under the clitoral hood and it has a vaginal opening. And I show to people, this is a vulva. I'd show the parents sessions and say, you know, I teach kids the difference between vulva and vagina in classrooms. Yesterday I was teaching grade three and four and we talk about bodies in the sense of physical bodies. We always differentiate between gender and bodies in classrooms as well. And that's important for children to understand. And kids, when I ask them, always have great knowledge about how gender can differ from people's sexes. So when I talk about a vulva puppet, I don't say female vulva puppet. I say a vulva puppet, but it's lovely, yes. 
I wish I could show you, but it's <laughs> very impactful. <laughs> and there's sure. also 3D printout of clitorises that are useful for teaching as well to the teenagers. <laughs> I missed out on a lot, I tell you. Definitely did. So do you have both boys and girls in the classroom? So I have all children in classrooms and all genders. And we don't use the word boys and girls in our sexuality education class much. Could you explain why not? Because the boys and girls don't even notice that you don't say it, but the transgender child or the gender diverse child in the room notices a lot that you say Mm -hmm. it and their eyes brighten and they look at you as if to say, you're hearing me and you're including me. It's actually very easy to use inclusive language when we're teaching sexuality education. It gets easier. Don't, Don't get me wrong. It can be hard. The first time I ever used the word boy or girl in the classroom to say something to someone the other day, I misgendered the child. And, you know, I rarely said it and I just oh, I had to give myself my own advice. Don't be too hard on yourself. I said, okay, I hardly ever say that. <laughs> and that time I got it wrong. Kids get it. You know, I put the posters up of the bodies that don't really have too much. There isn't long hair on one and not on the other. They look very similar in the faces, but one has what we would say physical female genitals and one has physical male genitals. And I say to the kids, just before we get onto body parts, we'll just talk a bit about the uniqueness and diversity of humans. And it's not always as simple as being male or female. What am I talking about? And every single classroom, kids know it, even prep. Not everybody feels the same as their body. No, that's right. And yesterday in every class, one of the kids said, I know somebody, they wanted to be a girl and they had a boy body. You know, they're in their community, their friends, because that's part of being human. So we do talk about the words gender fluid, gender diverse, non-binary, transgender. And people's gender identity is their innate sense of who they are. If I say to you, Janet, for example, when when do you think we know we are the gender that we are? How do we know it? When do we know? I don't know when we know. Correct. We just know. And it doesn't always match the sex assigned at birth by the adults in the room. And that's just being human, has always and always will be. And I say in parent sessions, some people in our society think that people's gender must match their sex assigned at birth. Now, we're all entitled to our own opinion, but we're not entitled to harm someone else with that opinion. And some parents are getting a bit, I want to be inclusive, but I'm a bit confused with all the language LGBTIQ. And I say, you don't have to know it all, but you do have to respect the differences and uniqueness of everybody. Vanessa, I think you're right. I'm sure there are a lot of parents who worry about getting the language completely wrong. So if parents want to start conversations with their kids about gender, sexuality, and do it in a way that's respectful and supportive. Have you got any tips on the best way to do that? Yeah, so those tips for having engaging the conversations with your kids is just do it. Have lots and <laughs> lots of little conversations. Turn on commercial radio. That's a great one in the car. So if you're talking in the car, kids are locked in. They can't get out. They're a captive audience and everyone's facing forward, so it's not as embarrassing. And ask questions, leading questions, like deep down you're curious to want to know if they've got a boyfriend or a girlfriend, right? That's what parents are thinking. But to be inclusive because you're not sure if your child might be not heterosexual, you can say things like, I was reading an article the other day. It said a lot of kids in year seven start having partners. Do any of your friends have partners? And that's really open and inclusive and that almost gives the child who's worried about coming out saying, oh, maybe my adult's will be okay about it. They didn't ask if I've got a boyfriend just because I'm a girl. That is so powerful, that language. And so it's using inclusive language. And 
I heard on the radio that pornography is the main way kids are getting their information and the type of sexual activities in pornography is really unhelpful because it just shows so much about a penis and a vagina and penis and anus is going together, but there's so much more to it. The whole of the body is a pleasurable thing and brains are so important and it really doesn't matter whether it's a physical female or a physical male, but it's really what feels good for each person. Gee, one of the ways that people realise what feels good for them the best is to explore their own body. Full stop, move on. Just say it and move on to something else. (laughs) When you see an ad on TV, now I'm going from pleasure to puberty, the sanitary napkin ads on the TV, they're getting better these days, but to say, gee, that's weird that they show blue fluid on that because the lining of the uterus that comes out of the vagina is red blood-like fluid. Move on, keep washing the dishes. Just say (laughs) the statements a lot. There's so much advertising you could pick out. I have to pick my battles. I could talk about the inequity, disrespect, inaccuracy of intimate and sexual encounters forever from media, but you've got to wait till everyone's really open and ready to hear it. And just try that inclusive language. They, them, just until you're sure. Fantastic. Being open and making sure that you are the most askable and tellable parent for the children is the most important thing. Back to that question, who do you want to be? to be the main educator of your child about every topic of sex and sexuality, you want it to be you. Vanessa, this has been absolutely fabulous. Thank you for being so clear, so understanding, and also giving us examples of how to do it better. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure and thank you for the opportunity to get across to as many people as I can. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. For many people, talking about gender and sexuality is difficult. So I hope you found Vanessa's guidance helpful and encouraging. We're going to hear a lot more from Vanessa Hamilton in the future. But in the meantime, do check out other episodes in the Women's Health Week series. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Jean Howes podcast, Women's Health Week series. You can find out more about Vanessa and her company, Talking the Talk, by visiting talkingthetalksexed.com.au. For free, expert health information for all women, girls and gender-diverse people, visit genehales.org.au.